as some of you know, I've, I've had situations where my voice is completely gone in the middle of a sermon, and that's not good. So let's uh, make sure that doesn't happen this morning. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. It's wonderful to be here with the saints. Amen. Amen. I'm always thankful. Personally, I'm always thankful to gather with the saints on the Lord's Day. Uh, Do you realize that our Lord's Day gathering should really be the highlight of our week, ultimately, because we're spending time with the saints of the Lord. For me, as the Lord's Day approaches, I spend more and more time readying myself for our time together. Then after the service, I want you to know, and my family knows this very well, I generally crash for a few hours because I've worked my way to that crescendo, and then I crash after that, after we are done. Now, obviously, this has to do with my prep time and and with preaching, but in a similar fashion, all Christians... All Christians ought to anticipate the gathering through the week. We ought to ready ourselves in a variety of ways. And one crucial means is to really not make the week a desert. Not make the week a desert. What do I mean by that? Well, we need to spend time with one another during the week. We should be intentional in finding ways to fellowship with other believers during the flow of our week. And in doing so, we challenge one another as we interact. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. Clearly, this proverb assumes that God's people will come together more than two or three times a month. Right? Right? Most people nowadays will come to church. You know, they used to, regular attenders used to come three or four times a, a month. Nowadays, it's more like two or three times a month. That's what, how often you come, and, and, and the, it takes more than that. It takes more than that. To accomplish this, the Christian must then be intentional to spend time in fellowship outside of the regular Sunday gathering. This happens. This happens in groups of men or women. It could happen in a one-on-one setting or even a group setting, but your time together, your time together is, in, is incredibly important. You might spend time in a, in a in a formal small group or informal like two or three people or families just coming together for a meal or maybe it's just a christian brother and a brother meeting for breakfast or or uh, the ladies meeting in the same fashion i think the bonds of christian love grow strongest in this particular type of fellowship and meaning that it's more than this this meeting the here it is here let me just say it this way the meeting is not the meaning right Some people think that if I come to church on Sunday morning and check the box, that that's enough, but it's not. It's not. It's not enough. Speaking directly to the husbands, and today I'm going to start uh, speaking a lot to you men for the next couple of Sundays. Uh, But speaking directly to you husbands, you ought to be intentional in leading your families to spend time with other families within the body of Christ. Men, Men, doing this will change your family and the church for God's glory. You know, most of us work full-time. Most of us have full-time jobs. The tendency is to come home, sit on the couch, and watch television. Or some of you may retreat to your hobbies. Many men choose not even to go home, but to spend many of their outside hours hunting and fishing and playing golf. I love those, by the way. I love doing all three of those things. But, But the truth is, is that we can't forsake our families in chasing after those kind of hobbies. They leave home many times, and their children to their wives, and, or if the wife is also out to a babysitter, 
they don't take, these men don't take an active role within the family. And in worst case scenarios, we know that they're completely absent. Men have just gone. They're just gone. They choose not to commit to a long-term relationship with the mother of their babies. You know, the, their baby's mama is in the vernacular. And they do this for purely selfish reasons. Beloved, this is not God's design for the family. Over the past few weeks, we've been in a series we have called Family Matters. Uh, I, I've, I've subtitled this, God's Blueprint for family, or Marriage and Family. My continuing in prayer for the series is that the families of this church would be strengthened for the glory of God. And if, men, if you're not the guy I just described, thank the Lord you're not. And I pray that you would excel still more in those ways. I pray that we would take this time, that we would all, as a church body, that we would take this time as we go through this series to reflect and evaluate our families and to be willing to take up our cross and cross and follow Christ, that we would die to self and live to please our master. Now today we've made our way to Ephesians 5.25 where Paul gives instructions to the husbands. Men, here Paul will begin to answer what it truly means to be a husband to your wife. You would do well. You would do well to listen. As I told the ladies last week, if you don't heed what is said here, you do so at your own peril. And you will reap what you sow. So let's dig into this sermon this morning. Let me pray for the sermon and then we'll start. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this again, for this time of worship. Father, we've worshipped in song. We've worshipped in reading of your word. We've worshipped in prayer. We've even worshipped in looking at announcements, even things mundane, the mundane calendar items are a form of worship because we commit them to you. Or may we commit this time this morning, this sermon time this morning to you. May I be clear, concise. Father, just that the listener would heed your word. In Christ's name, amen. The headline of a news story that ran last week states, Brink of a fertility crisis. Scientist says plummeting sperm counts caused by everyday, everyday products. A 40-year-long study showed sperm counts have dropped by nearly half. In the article, Dr. Shana Swan hypothesizes men will no longer produce sperm by the, the year 2045. The article goes on to describe the ongoing fertility crisis which is causing some couples great difficulty in getting pregnant and having children. According to statistics, one couple out of ten is struggling with fertility problems. Dr. Swan points out that many times the woman's age impacts the ability to get pregnant. In 1980, 22 years was the average marriage age of women. In 2018, that age had risen to 27.8 and is going higher. The average age of the first baby has risen as well, along with that marriage age. As of 2016, women were more likely to have a baby in their, early, their first baby in their early 30s than in their late 20s. This is primarily due to waiting until they finalize college education and establish their careers. 
The decision to wait has impacted fertility rates, but it seems that the dropping sperm count may eventually have an even greater effect. According to Dr. Swan, chemicals from plastics are getting into our bodies, impacting our hormones, and ultimately interfering with our reproductive functions. Phthalates are the culprit. Phthalates are chemicals in plastics that lower the body's testosterone. We get these chemicals from our food, our water, and from our health care and beauty products. To put it in perspective, plastics productions went, production went from almost zero in 1950 to almost 400 million metric tons in 2015. That's a lot of plastic, is it not? Because that stuff doesn't weigh very much. Think about that. All of these factors have had a negative effect on, birth, on the birth rate. In 2020, the U.S. birth rate dropped to about 56 births per 1,000 women of childbearing age, the lowest rate on record. The rate is half of what it was in the 1960s. Just a few years ago, the U.S. was among the only few developed countries with a fertility rate that ensured each generation had enough children to at least replace it. It's called the replacement rate. About a dozen years ago, the estimated rate was 2.1 kids per U.S. woman, but it's sliding. Last year, it dropped to 1.6, the lowest, again, the lowest rate on record. Now, obviously, the dropping sperm counts may contribute to an even greater decline in the birth rate. This is tied with increased estrogen and decreased testosterone levels in men. As such, I'm not here for a science lesson. As such, men are less manly than ever before. We can scientifically say that. This is coupled with an increase in uh, female leadership and the marginalization of boys and men in our society. These factors are causing an acceleration of the feminization of our culture. This is not to mention the destructive effects that pornography and gaming are having on our boys and men. As a result, there is a whole segment of men who are essentially living examples of the Peter Pan syndrome. They never, ever grow up. Sadly, this has all had a de detrimental effect on the modern family and our culture. The chaos has given rise to things such as gender, gender neutrality, which is a conscious choice not to identify as binary. And many young folks, many millennials, the idea is, is that I try to look as neutral as possible so that people wonder whether you're male or female because you don't want to be either. Just this past week, TV and music personality, TV and music personality Demi Lovato, I don't really even know who she is, quite frankly, but I know that she's somewhat popular. She tweeted, Today is a day I'm so happy to share, uh, share more of my life with you all. I'm proud to let you know that I identify as non-binary and will officially be changing my pronouns to they and them moving forward. End quote. Now, it's interesting. You read Wikipedia, and they actually do change the pronouns. It is the most confusing stupidity I've ever heard. But the sadness here, this young lady, this young lady has chosen to hide her God-given, beautiful femaleness so that she can be neutral. Sadly, this is more of a display of insanity than true happiness. And you may think I'm being harsh, 
But according to various sources, she's suffered from bipolar disorder, anorexia, and self-harm, all prior to this change. Of note, she's been vocal about a, a lack of a relationship with her father, who she says was abusive toward her and her mother. So again, we see this destruction of the family, and we see the attack. Beloved, the church must continue to preach the truth in this ungodly culture. The truth. The truth is that we need strong men, and we need strong women who understand their God-given roles. The reality is that our men have more problems than a low sperm count. I would argue that this dropping count may have as much to do with the dropping appreciation for masculinity as it does plastics. And I don't doubt the science, but the truth is is that, that we are marginalizing our men and boys. In other words, if we want strong men, then we need to encourage our men to act like men. There's a reason that God told Joshua to be strong and courageous. And Paul was right to tell the church at Corinth, act like men. You see, Paul wasn't being a male chauvinist. He recognized this, the need for strong, courageous men to lead their families and to lead the church. Ladies, I pray. I pray that you realize the concept of toxic max masculinity is dangerous. It's a dangerous ideology. It tempts you to think that there's something inherently wrong with men. You, ladies, you need men to be strong and masculine. Let me tell you something. Impotent males are much more of a danger to you and your children than strong ones are. Impotent males are much more of a danger to you and your children than strong ones are. I have two daughters. I am highly concerned that they will not find truly godly men who act like men. They need masculine men who will care for them and protect them and encourage them to act like ladies, to act like women. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been working through Ephesians 5, which addresses the family structure. In 521, he starts by imploring the church uh, to, reflect, to reflect our roles clearly. And to, to do so, we need to be in the correct submission. Look at your text in 521. He says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. God has designed a hierarchy of authority in His world and in the church and in the family. Without proper authority and submission, this world would descend to chaos. God has designed His world and His church and His people to be ordered and at peace and not chaotic. Chaos comes from, from not reflecting our roles clearly in the eyes of God, which reflects our brokenness before Him. To reflect our roles clearly, we must not only be in the correct roles or a correct submission, we must have the correct stimulus. The correct stimulus, that's 21, the, end of, the end of verse 21. We are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We submit to authority because we want to honor our Lord's commands. Now, starting in verse 22 and 23, we saw that Paul implored the wives to submit to their own husbands by giving three clear motivations for this appeal. First motivation, you should submit to your own husbands because you're of your connection to Christ. Look at your text in verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
In other words, your submission to your husbands reflects your submission to Christ. This leads us to the second motivation. You should submit to your own husbands because of your comprehension of creation. Look at your text. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now, in our study a few weeks ago, we saw that man's authority and the woman's submission has been derived from God's very good, his perfect creation. It is part of God's perfect blueprint for flourishing in God's creation. We saw that because that before the woman was created, the, the God gave the man the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then he also, he said, you, you need a helper, a helper suitable, and so he gave the woman to the man. And therefore, the man had a command from the Lord and had one to protect the woman. But he failed in that, did he not? The third motivation comes from verses 23 and 24. You should submit to your own husbands because of your consideration of the church. Look at your text. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Ladies, your marriages ladies and and for the men too, your marriages reflect the much greater reality of Christ's redemption and headship of the church, which has been described as the bride of Christ. At this juncture then, Paul shifts his focus to the husbands, and that's where we'll be today. So let's pick up in verse 25, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Let me read the text. I'm going to read all the way down to, all the way down to verse 33. The Apostle Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love, ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother, or father, and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I am speaking of with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as he has himself. And the wife must, must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, in this passage, in this passage, Paul implores husbands to love their wives. Then he gives three clear illustrations of this love. You must love your wives, first, because of Christ's straightforward command to love. Look at your text. So the, in this text, we're going to see the command's audience. Look at your text. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. Very straightforward. Clearly here, husbands are Paul's primary audience. Now we've seen that marriage is, a, is God's idea from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, God fashioned the woman from the man, then he presented her to the man. In that text, he gave the man responsibility for the woman. 
God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman from the beginning, male and female. He created them. But from the time of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, man has corrupted God's blueprint for marriage. Some people point to the Old Testament and they say, well, look at all the stuff that's going on in the Old Testament. Can I have multiple wives? Well, no. In Genesis 4, Genesis 4 begins with the birth of, of Cain, and, and it traces his evil lineage. Just a few generations later, Moses records the first instance of polygamy, when Lamech took two wives from himself. The, tr- the truth is, is this was not a good thing. It's not a good thing. In Genesis chapter 9, Sarah persuaded Abraham to have a child with Hagar. By the time we make it to Genesis 19, the perversions pro- proliferate to the point where God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual perversions. In Genesis 34, we find that Shechem raped Jacob's daughter Dinah. In Genesis 38, we see Judah's wicked son Onan spilling his seed instead of taking his dead brother's wife. This treachery threatened the Messiah's line. Now, shockingly, shockingly, in this chapter, Genesis 38, Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, had to prostitute herself, basically, with Judah to prevent the line of the Messiah to be, from being cut off. Now, clearly, clearly these instances departed from God's design for marriage, thus perverting his design. And this perversion led to chaos, incredible chaos, the incredible chaos that we see on the pages of Scripture and in the world. His blueprint for marriage called for one man to marry one woman unto death of one of the two. Therefore, he expected the husband to remain devoted to the wife. Now, while husbands are the primary audience of Paul, Paul's instructions to the wives to submit to their husbands should be ringing in our ears. God's perfect design for marriage is for wives to submit to their husbands and for the husbands, look at your text, to love their wives. Paul writes, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So here we see the command's ambition. The command's ambition now, Paul's words, Paul's words should jump off the page to you by what he doesn't say more than what he says. He doesn't, he doesn't tell the husbands, he doesn't say to them to rule over your wives. Because that's our tendency. Our tendency as men is to rule over our wives. It's been this way from the time of the fall. In Genesis 3.16, God told the woman that her husband would rule over her. Now, I would argue that this has shaped the relationship between men and women even to this day. Men, we generally have a sinful desire to rule over our wives. As a result of the curse, we want to dominate. We want to dominate. We want to control. We want to command. We want them to do our bidding. We want them to bring satisfaction to us. In Genesis 4.23, Lamech demonstrates this tendency. He said to his wives, you remember he's polygamist, right? The first polygamist recorded in the Bible. He says to Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. As men, we tend toward being like Lamech. We, We tend to want to rule over them with our speech. We want to command them. But there's another way that men may cope with women. We avoid them. We avoid them. We we let them lead by avoiding conflict with them. 
I mean, in some cases, men won't even get married because they, they want to avo- completely avoid women. They're scared of them. It's very manly. I, I'm obviously being sarcastic. But we let them, and when we get married and we're in this situation, we avoid them by, we avoid conflict with them. And in some cases, we avoid them altogether. The man cave or the basement comes to mind. We simply hide. We put our head in the sand and we let them rule the roost. So, that's, so either we, we rule over them or we avoid them. Now, sometimes that goes together. We were t- I was talking about this with someone. Sometimes we sit and we let them rule. We let them rule. We avoid, we avoid, we avoid until we get it about right here with everything that's going on. And then what do we do? We lash out. It's ungodly. It's ungodly. In the early, early 20th century, there was a cartoon character named Casper Milktoast. The cartoon's creator described him as the man who speaks softly and gets hit with a big stick. You see, Casper Milktoast avoided all conflict. He was soft, and he was incredibly ineffectual as a leader. Men, speaking to you, we must not be like Lamech, and we must not be like Casper Milktoast. The Apostle Paul understands these tendencies. Therefore, he says to the men, you are to love your wives. I find it very difficult to love your wives by ruling over them, and it's very difficult to love your wives by avoiding them. Can't do either. Now, what we have to understand is that this is a huge departure from the culture of Paul's day. We should recognize the revolutionary nature of this command. The elevation and commitment to your wife, that type of elevation and commitment to your wife, was unheard of in that world. It's becoming less and less common in our world, is it not? One Roman writer said, If you are to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, kill her without trial. But if she catches you, she would not venture to touch you with a finger. She has no right, end quote. You see, that was the attitude of men over women during Paul's day. They had full control over women. A man could kill his wife or his daughters without any legal repercussions. She does something wrong? Your, your, your wife or your daughter, and you execute her. Nobody would say a word. Some cultures, they still carry on that today. John MacArthur states, women were considered in that culture differently than they are today. They were considered less than human. They were considered as slaves, beasts of burden in many cases. They had no rights at all. And men fulfilled the curse and fully exercising a vicious kind of rule and domination over women in general. That's, ladies, that's, the history, that's history. That's history. We should recognize then, as a church, we, should, we must recognize, as Christians, we must see that the biblical wor- worldview has done more to free women than anything else from this type of subjugation. The apostles elevated women far above the world's standards. This is not male chauvinism. Peter says that your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. She stands as an equal before you. It amazes me that feminists today would have women fall back into this type of slavery. You say, well, what do you mean? Don't they want freedom? 
well, I would argue that the biblical worldview and Western culture has given women more freedom than, than anything. And it's even given them the freedom to become feminists. Oh, how blinded they are. They can't see that satanic forces would like nothing more than to free the, a woman from the loving bonds of God's design so that they can be enslaved again. I hope you realize that sex trafficking, you know, people, you know, obviously slavery has been abolished, but sex trafficking is a form of slavery for the purpose of prostitution and, and pornography, and it thrives in our world. It thrives. Thousands of, of women and children are exploited all the time by men. During Paul's day in the Roman Empire, it is estimated that one in three people were used as slaves. Men generally used, men were generally used for labor, while women and children were used for the purpose of enjoyment, to bring satisfaction to the men. You see, Christians in the church age have always been at the forefront of freeing women and children from this type of slavery. Nothing offers more protection for them than God's design for the family, even today. Nothing elevates women more than God's view of them. Nothing endangers or denigrates women more than the world's view of them. More than the world's view of them. Just watch just, watch just popular television today. And you see it. I, I, don't watch popular television. Don't. Just, just strike that from the record. In the words of Elizabeth Elliot, uh, Christian's true freedom lies, a Christian woman's true freedom, freedom lies on the other side of a very small gate, humble obedience. But that gate leads into a largeness of life undreamed of by the liberators of the world, to a place where the God-given differentiation between the sex is not obfuscated, but celebrated, where our inequalities are seen as essential to the image of God. For it is in male and female, in male as male and female as female, not as two identical and interchangeable has, that the image is manifested. She just simply is saying we need, women need to be women and men need to be men. And that's the, the design that God has. Back in Ephesians 525, Paul uses the Greek word agapao. This Greek word speaks the type of love that is not selfish. It seeks the highest good for the object of one's love. This type of love does not account for the worthiness or merit of the object of its love. A man who loves his wife in this way does so even when there is no response or even when there is a negative reaction. In other words, it is a self-sacrificing type of love. It's a take-up-your-cross-and-follow-Christ type of love. This type of love never seeks to dominate or control. It never seeks to avoid. This type of love seeks the highest good for our wives, no matter the cost to us. Now, in this context, the highest good is to, be lovingly, to lovingly be the man to whom she can easily submit. Brothers, Brothers, God calls you to be a man who your wife should desire to follow. Be the man that she wants to submit to. Be the man who lovingly leads her and loves her. This doesn't mean, though, men, this does not mean that they will always want to follow. Many times your wife will not want to submit to you because of her own sinful tendencies. We are all broken, right? But... 
your job is to be that type of man regardless. Martin Luther describes this well. He says, let the wife make the husband glad to come home. And let him make her sorry to see him leave. End quote. Men, this type of love is difficult. Many times it calls for us to do hard things. Many times it calls for us to make incredibly difficult stands in our home. There are times when your wife will not be easy to love in this way. And those times we, when our wives are not easy to love, we tend toward being Lamech or Casper Milktoast, one of the two, right? We, we either want to bring down the hammer or we want to avoid. But Paul has another ambition in mind. You see, he says to love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. You see, Christ is the model for this type of sacrificial love. We must love our wives as Christ loves the church. This is a straightforward call. We are called to measure our love for our wives against the perfect standard of Christ's love for us perfect standard. What is the measure of this call? Well, that is the first of three clear illustrations of God's command to love your wife. First illustration, you must love your wives because of Christ's sacrificial love. Look at your text in 525. Paul writes, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's interesting to note that this is the only instance in the New Testament that Christ, or that, that the New Testament specifically mentions Christ's love for the church. So how do we know that Christ loves his church? Well, his actions have demonstrated his love, have they not? In 1.7, Paul says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In other words, Jesus willingly went to the cross suffered and died to redeem us from that slave market of sin. He did this so that through his blood we would be forgiven. Because of his sinless, perfect life and his sin-atoning death on the cross, he has canceled out the certificate of debt which we could never repay, having nailed it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2. <coughs> In Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, he says, God is rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us. He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brethren, his love for us does not depend upon our worthiness. You see, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking in accordance with this world, living in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh. We deserve God's wrath, not His mercy. But God is rich in mercy. And because of His great love, He has saved us and He has raised us up in the heavenlies with Christ our Savior. This is... Beloved, is the measure of the love that Christ has for His church. And he's, it's the measure of the love that He has for each individual Christian. According to Acts 20.28, 20, Christ purchased the church of God with His own blood. Again, this illustrates a self-sacrificing type of love. He didn't do this because we deserved it. 
Romans, Romans says, the book of Romans, I think it's Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As sinners, as sinners, you deserve punishment and death. Yet he has shown mercy and love. And he has laid down his life for us. He willingly did this. In John 10, Jesus says that he has laid down his own life, or his life on his own initiative. He laid his life down for his sheep. That type of love, the type of love that he's showing, requires action. Let me briefly say to those who are not in Christ, maybe, maybe you're saying I'm not worthy of Christ's love. I have sinned too much. I've done too many terrible things. How could he ever accept me? Friends, his love is not predicated on our worthiness. His love does not depend on your righteousness. Come to him and he will show you mercy and grace. He will love you sacrificially, unlike anyone else can ever love you. Men, your love for your wife does not manifest itself in your emotions. Oh, you may, you may have emotions. You may or may not feel love for your wife. God gave us emotions for a purpose, but they do not necessarily demonstrate that you love your wife. And your love is not just demonstrated by your words either. You may tell your wife that you love her every day, but your words are absolutely meaningless. They're vanity if they're not matched by your actions. Jesus not only spoke of his love, he demonstrated it. He demonstrated it through his suffering and death. And he also called us to love one another in the same way, did he not? John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. In John 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. <clears throat> so that's loving one another sacrificially, is the call for all Christians toward all Christians. Men, we cannot say that we have love for the brethren if that love does not begin with our wives. Say that again. You cannot say that you have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ if that love does not start, does not find its genesis, does not find its beginning in, in your love for Christ, but is not demonstrated by your love for your wife. We are called to love our wives sacrificially just as Christ loved us sacrificially. That's the measure of our love. In the words of John MacArthur again, what higher motive could there be for the husband to love his wife? By loving her as Christ loved the church, he honors Christ in the most direct and graphic way. 
He becomes the embodiment of Christ's love to his own wife, a living example to the rest of his family, a channel of blessing to his entire household, and a powerful testimony to (coughs) the watching world. Men, if you are married, Christ is calling you to love him by loving your wives sacrificially. To lay your life down for your wife as Christ loved the church. <coughs> the marriage then becomes a wonderful picture of Christ and the church when the husband and wife fully give themselves to one another. According to Wayne Mack, this is according to the Bible, the marriage act is more than a physical act. It is an act of sharing. It is an act of communion. It is, a, it is an act of total self-giving wherein the husband gives himself completely to the wife and the wife gives herself to the husband in such a way that the two actually become one flesh, end quote. That's the picture of God's blueprint. And beloved, we can't lose the sight of the overall theme of Paul's letter. He desired for the church at Ephesus to be strengthened and mature so that they could fully participate in building the church through the spread of the gospel, even in his absence. And nothing demonstrates true Christian faith more than love for God and for others. And men, then there is no greater indication of your love for God and others than your love for your wife. Church, there is no greater demonstration of the gospel than when we live it the gospel, in the context of our marriages. It speaks to a watching world. It shows that we truly love one another, and it shows that we have been set apart for and are in Christ. That's that's it. So when we preach the gospel, we're not preaching empty words. We're showing and we're demonstrating a true life change in Christ. Let me speak briefly to our singles. That's uh, always the danger. I mean, I'm preaching the scripture, so that's uh, that's right. But there's always a danger of forgetting a certain group. But if you're not married, Christ is still calling you to love him and serve him sacrificially. He is calling you to demonstrate your love for him through your love for others. You model this through a life of purity and devotion to Christ. And it's in this way that the call is no different whether you're single or married. In other words, a man ought to live so that everyone knows that he's a Christian. If you're a single man, this is is made known by your love and devotion to Christ and your love for the brethren. If you're a married man, you ought to live so that everybody knows that you're a Christian. And according to D.L. Moody, your family ought to be the first to know. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, may our families be the first to know that we truly love you. May we love our wives with a sacrificial love, a love that's willing to lay down our lives, a a love that's willing to lead, not avoid, not dominate, not rule over, to 
be a man who our wives want to submit to. A man who our wives would not want to leave the, ho- the home. Father, may we, as a church, demonstrate our love for you and our love for others by our love for our spouse. May it start in the home. And for those who are not married, whether it be a single man who is not married, may he love you and walk in purity and devotion to Christ. For the young lady who isn't married, that they would do the same. Father, may we be people who please you, not because we want to gain favor and not in that sense of salvation. Lord, we know, we know that it is for your glory that we obey. And ultimately, it's ultimately for your glory, but it's also our joy because we have peace when we're in obedience to you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that your gospel has set the captives free. May we preach the gospel to those who are in bondage. Oh, they don't know they're in bondage. They don't know what they need. But Lord, you you make the dead alive. Lord, you make those who are in leading lustful and fleshly lives to come to you. Draw them near you. Use us as a church. Use our families so that, Lord, you would be honored and we would see the lost come to Christ by the preaching of the gospel. It's in his name we pray. Amen.